Welcome to the Feds. Insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Welcome to the Feds, where information meets action. I am Stephanie Weidel, joined by Jim Erdman. Today, we interview someone who took action with the disturbing information he found out. Garrett O'Boyle is an FBI agent who blew the whistle to Congress regarding several items which we will discuss today. On top of the broken system he saw within the FBI, he experienced its further breakdown as he was retaliated against after coming forward as a whistleblower. Thank you so much, Garrett, for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background? All right, yeah. So uh, born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, after high school, I enlisted in the Army, where I was an infantryman for six years. I deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan during that time. Um, let's see, after that, I came back Came back home, uh, went to school, became a police officer, uh, graduated from Marquette University in downtown Milwaukee, Shortly after that is when I applied to the FBI. And about a year later uh, from then is when I got hired. And fast forward to today, it's been about five years since then. And now I'm uh, suspended indefinitely without pay forever. Uh, FBI former, or they told me I can't even identify as an FBI agent anymore. So uh, suspended FBI agent, I guess, would be what I can say. So when did you enter the FBI service? Uh, it was July of 2018 when I got uh, into Quantico. So I drove there a day after my second oldest had turned two, or no, she had turned one. She had just turned one, and a day later I drove to Quantico. And, can can you yeah. can you also how long was the security clearance process for you? Um, let's see. I think that my security clearance background investigation started like in March or April of. 2018. And then I was hired in July. So mine moved pretty quick. My whole hiring process yeah. was just shy of 12 months. It was like 11 months. And that's, that's yeah. super speedy. That's right. wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why did you want to become an FBI agent? <laughs> that's a good question. I kind of wish I wouldn't have at this point, but um, I think uh, just the trajectory of my life, you know, but going back to growing up, 9-11 um, had a big impact on me, as I'm sure it did many people who decided to get into the CIA like Jim or FBI like me and or, you know, local law enforcement or fire, you know, you name it, military. I mean, it certainly is what put me on this path. And uh, I had a twin brother. Uh, I, I still do. Um, and, and an older brother. And we were all pretty close growing up. But yeah, 9-11 for me. Um, it's really kind of what shifted gears in my head. And, you know, my twin, he always wanted to join the military. Like I remember as kids, like he would be looking up Navy SEAL books and stuff like that. And I was always like, dude, let's play video games or basketball or something. And he was like, no, I got to train, you know? And then after 9-11, I was like, man, maybe, maybe I should get on that path too. And um, so I did. And, and I just have always loved this country, you know, for all of our woes as a nation, you know, and, I think they're only getting worse. Um, those aside, I still thought I got to do my part um, to make this nation better, you know, and uh, I have four little girls now and my wife. And when I look at the fabric of our nation, I think, man, this nation is worse than it was when I was a kid. It, it should be better. And I want to leave it better for my children 
than it was for me. And that's not the case right now. And I don't know if we can get there, but I certainly will strive and do my best uh, to make sure that we we can. And even if it's futile, uh, which it might be, but I'm not going to stop. You've talked many times about your Christian faith in our conversations. Um, did that did that kind of change the way that you saw things within the FBI? Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, that's actually the most important part of all of this to me is is my faith and and getting to talk about that. So thanks for asking. But uh, yeah, my faith certainly does play a huge role, and it certainly played a huge factor into why I started blowing the whistle on things because, and, you know, I put this in, uh, so it's been about a year, uh, since I was suspended. It was September 26th was a year. And in October of last year, I was afforded the opportunity, if you want to call it that to provide a written appeal to their decision to suspend me. Of course, that written, written appeal itself went to the very people who suspended me the FBI. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just a shame. Well, they, Garrett, they, they investigated themselves and found no wrongdoing. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, which perfect. is exactly what happened. But, but in there I put, um, a verse James four seventeen, which has really been preeminent for me. And it, it says essentially for the person who knows the right thing and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And, uh, you know, I just told some friends the other night that that verse, uh, it's, it's been really powerful for me again lately because um, I'm struggling. You know, I, I, it, this whole year has been a struggle and some days are worse than others. And it, it's been kind of a, a rut for me again lately. And I, I keep coming to, back to that verse though. And uh, for all the things I saw, if I would have done nothing, I would have then deliberately been sinning against my God and against my fellow man and against my nation. And I, I just couldn't willingly do that. And don't get me wrong. I am a sinner. I sin every day. I have had unrighteous anger throughout this process. I think I've had some righteous anger too. Uh, you know, I've had fear and anxiety and, and, you know, chaos and all sorts of things that uh, people would be like, wow, that guy's life is really in disarray. And they'd be right. It is. It is in disarray. Uh, when you get everything uh, stripped away from you um, suddenly, like I did, it, it tends to lead to a little bit of chaos, but in the end, at least so far, it has shown uh, that I have had a true faith overall because I'm not going to turn my back on, on God. He's not going to turn his back on me. Uh, Christ is the one true savior. And uh, that's the pillar of truth that I get to stand on. And the hard times aside, my own sin nature aside, at least I, I have that faith to, to keep, to keep encouraging me and to keep me bolstered and, and steadfast. So, so sorry, Garrett, Steph, go ahead. I don't know how the FBI works in terms of giving people jobs or tasks to do, mm -hmm. but you, you in your um, congressional uh, interviews, um, in your testimonies, you, you had a lot of different things to say. So can you tell us kind of how the FBI structure works? Like what tasks were you put onto? What, what were you brought into the FBI to do? Right. So initially when you're hired as an agent, which is what I was hired as. So there's a couple different job options in the FBI. I think the one most people identify the FBI with is that of special agent. And, you know, that that can be attributed to Hollywood and Capone and the early days of, of the FBI. But, you know, there are analysts and there are clerks and, you know, lawyers and all sorts of other people. But uh, for an agent, um, you know, at Quantico, you get assigned to your field office uh, about halfway through. And then once you get to your field office, 
they determine what type of violations you're going to work. And when I got assigned to the Kansas City division, uh, I ended up getting assigned to a small satellite office down in Wichita. And uh, I got assigned to the National Security Squad. And initially I was assigned to international terrorism, but there's not a whole lot of that in in rural Kansas. But uh, so I ended up even right off the bat working more domestic terrorism than international terrorism. And then after a couple of years, they switched my my position from that of the international terrorism agent to that of the domestic terrorism agent, since that had been one I'd primarily been working on anyways. And so, and then uh, my SWAT duties on top of that, which is, that was honestly mostly uh, drug related or violent, violent subject related or gang related uh, is where they would use us the most. Um, and isn't that on call? Like it's sort of like a, a phone, phone SWAT, yeah, you guys are called up, yeah. right? It, it is. It's not. It's not as much uh, as on call like a uh, like a local SWAT team. And then, mm-hmm. especially for me down in Wichita, most most of the times, if if the team was getting called out, it was somewhere in the Kansas City area. And there were times where, like you know, your phone would blow up and it'd be like, "Hey, you know, meet at the field office. We got a roll to whatever a barricaded subject or active shooter or you know, uh, officer." And that does- that but, does include like a lot of extra training too, right? Oh, so you yeah, spend sure. a lot of time at the shoot house. You spend mm-hmm. a lot of time honing those skills, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was on, I was on SWAT for two years and uh, we had to, by FBI policy, you have to have, I think it was 20% of your, of your duty hours had to be spent training for SWAT. And so we had to do four days a month and we were shooting, you know, out of those four days, we were shooting it usually at least two of those days definitely way more than your average agent. Um, so and- I'm bringing this to a point too. So you're shooting all the time, a lot of bullets down range. You got trainers, you got special facilities. Would you say that they put, they spent a lot of money on you getting you up to speed and getting you ready to go do that very dangerous job, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It seems a shame that they would, not want to keep that investment. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. You know, it's a shame to me too. Uh, (laughs) And then on top of that, um, so I, uh, I actually had tried out for a new unit uh, and I was in the middle of a transfer when I got suspended and, you know, your audience can, can look my name up on whatever search engine they want to use. And they're going to find a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there. And, you know, some of that includes me being smeared as a malcontent and a sub, a subpar employee, but that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I, I tried out and was selected for SWAT. I tried out and was selected for this new unit that the FBI was standing up and, I, and, you know, they were eager to have me. They, they were basically talking me into the transfer. Uh, Cause my wife went at the time when I tried out, she was pregnant and we knew uh, our daughter, we didn't know it was a daughter at the time, but we knew um, a baby was coming in September. And we knew if, if, if I made this new unit, that that would be right around the time we'd have to PCS which is a permanent change of station uh, to the new to the new duty assignment, which was in the Quantico, Virginia area. So it's a cross country move, and you know, so they spent a lot of time and effort on that, even to send me to the training for that new unit, to send me to the selection for that. And then when I showed up on my first day, my daughter was two weeks old. Uh, we had not we had sold our house in Kansas. We had not yet closed on our house in Virginia, which, as you know, with the government. They're aware of all of this because they're involved with the move and the transfer and getting your household goods packed up. So I don't think I'll ever be convinced that uh, this was anything but malicious. So I show up on my first day and that's when they suspend me. 
and they're like, all right, see ya. Well, you know, the, the, and I, I had a question, but uh, I think you, I think you answered it uh, fully there. So what year was that? That was just last year. That was, that was just last year. Okay. So what had you, what had you gone to public about? What did you see within the FBI and what did you go public about? Right. Sorry, so I, Stephanie, I, real quick, I, I, I want to ask one question that's related to this. You know, so you go public, things come out, and we can talk about what you went public for. But you had mentioned that there was a lot of mis disinformation that was put out there about you right. that didn't represent your character or your work ethic. Um, how did that get out there? Who was putting it out there? Like, did this show up just in newspapers, uh, or or were there colleagues of yours that decided that they just, you know, wanted to make, make it tougher for you, which that seems like a horrible thing to do, but yeah. So I imagine that the FBI was involved to some degree. I don't know for sure. Um, but what I do know for sure is so, so the, the information that came out about me was after I'd already been suspended. It was shortly before I testified and I went to Washington DC in February of this year for a, a deposition essentially. Uh, they call it a, a, a closed door transcribed interview, but it's essentially a deposition where mm -hmm. Democrat and Republican staff attorneys question me, you know, for, and for that hours. was a skip, right? That was I not, that, Oh, that was not okay. No, so that, that was no, nothing classified was discussed. Nothing was, classified, which man, yeah, that's another, that's another subject too. I, uh, the classified info that nobody wanted to hear, but everybody should know, which I wasn't ever able to whistleblow that stuff. But anyways, um, so about a month or so after that deposition, uh, hit pieces start start dropping on me and the and me and a couple other guys in the New York Times and CNN and Rolling Stone and you know a bunch of other places now. And so I, I don't know what or if the I don't know to what degree the FBI was involved, but I'm sure the Democrat staff attorneys um, who who you know deposed me had had a hand to play in that. Because there which were co which committee was this? Which this, oversight? This for the weaponization committee, the subcommittee. Yeah. Committee. Okay. And then <laughs> falls under the judicial committee. Right. Yeah. The judiciary so, committee. And I'm getting to something here too. I just out of curiosity, the staffers that staff the judiciary committee, um, do they come from DOJ, FBI, you know, those sort of law enforcement wings? Because I'll tell you the the oversight committees for intelligence, a lot of times they're staffed. Their staffers are former CIA, former IC. So I, is that I, the same thing? I don't know for sure and the entirety of that, but I do know at least one of the Democrat staffers came from DOJ, and I'm pretty sure she had a, a pretty big hand to play in, in getting some of my stuff leaked. And you know, she probably has contacts at DOJ or FBI that she could go to and say, "Hey, what what else can you give us on this guy?" Yeah, you know, we don't know, we don't know, but it, it does, you know. It, it makes it hard for people who are whistleblowers, I, I suppose, if they want to go forward and say something and they go to their oversight committee and their oversight committee is filled with people from their from their line of work, at least, yeah. maybe not necessarily specifically where they were. Yeah, well, yeah, so, that and then on top of it, they told me, you know, looking back, it's like I was kind of lured there, you know, because they said, don't talk about this, keep this confidential, that that's we don't want anybody talking about this outside of here. And then lo and behold, little tidbits get leaked here and there and get construed and, and, you know, obfuscated to the nth degree 
And it's like, man, this stuff isn't even close to like contextually what I was talking about, what I was saying, why I came forward. And yeah, so it's, you know, it, it, it was disheartening to see like, oh, okay. Like, cause one of the things I said in that deposition was that this is not a partisan issue. Um, things the FBI no one, are doing. No one up on the Hill, it seems like believes people when they say that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they do. They must not. Um, but yeah, what kind of led to that was back in the first time I went to Congress was November of 2021, uh, mm. because I had brought some things, uh, to my supervisor's attention and that continually fell on deaf ears. And so I was like, I took, I had just taken the annual whistleblower training and I was taking copious notes and I was like, I think I'm going to do this like actual whistleblow to Congress because my chain of command isn't listening. And, and then on top of it, a number of the things I took to my chain of command to my face, they, they would say, you bring up some really good points, man. We, nobody's really talking about it from that perspective, you know? And, uh, my, my first line supervisor, he ended up what I know, knowing what I know now, this was one of my first protected disclosures. I sent him a rather large document is like 15, 16 pages of, of constitutional concerns I had with uh, the executive order 14043 mandating that all federal employees get the COVID-19 vaccine. And I typed this up and I had case law and all sorts of stuff in there. And I, I sent it to him and he read through it and he's like, man, the, even though I, I got vaccinated myself, I, I completely see where you're coming from. And this is really powerful. And he started sending it out to, to friends and people he knew in the agency. And it's like, I gave you that, like as a supervisor, that's a protected disclosure, dude, but nothing yeah. happened with it. And then, uh, you know, fast forward at that point, it was like the scales had fallen from my eyes and I was like, oh, this agency is actually not interested in doing the right thing at all. They're just interested in collecting a paycheck and, and, you know, getting to retirement or that next promotion or whatever. And so then at that point I was like, okay, every time I see something that is wrong, I'm just going to whistleblow it. And so that's what yeah. I started doing. And I had been doing that for about 10 months. And then that's when they dropped the hammer on me. None of this stuff uh, was public at that point. And now right. some of it has leaked out over time, you know, before I testified, like we talked about, and then certainly uh, after some of that has come out too. So I just want to make sure everyone understands. Um, so when someone, um, we got to talk about a little bit of the process. So for you, you said, you mentioned the term uh, protected disclosure, just to clarify for everyone, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, since you're the expert, but um, you know, a protected disclosure is when someone within an agency or department goes to a supervisor or someone in authority and says, hey, listen, this issue right here, I think there's a problem with it. Now, if you're working for FBI, DOJ, IRS, doesn't matter where, you know, if you're identifying fraud, waste, and abuse, if you're identifying something that looks as though it falls outside of regulation, that or you know uh, is discriminatory that goes to EEO actually the discriminatory stuff but things that generally it's like a fraud waste and abuse sort of thing but something something that is illegal right. once you make that statement that's the protected disclosure now that's not whistleblowing that's just saying hey listen I, I think you guys should do something what happens afterwards is when someone gets retaliated against uh, for making that protected disclosure, then they file a whistleblower complaint because they're saying, hey, listen, I said this, and then this happened, and I'm a good employee. I didn't do anything other than say this. 
So that's where the whistleblower complaint comes in. I, just to clarify, did I miss anything there? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess it's a little nuanced, like at least in the FBI, like if you make a protected disclosure, you're the that's supposed to trigger the whistleblower protections. And so if I go to my boss and I say, hey, boss, uh, based on this Supreme Court case law, what you guys are trying to make us do with the COVID vaccine or fill in the blank, that's illegal. And there, there are five uh, major categories of wrongdoing that that you can become a whistleblower for. Uh, I don't know them all off the top of my head, but the, the main ones that I filed protected disclosures under were abuse of authority and uh, oh, what was the other? Yeah, see, abuse of authority was the big one uh, because that I mean that man, just look at look at the front page of the newspaper every day just about. And it's like the FBI is violating something again. And I started seeing all sorts of things that I was like, we shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. And so started. So I, I we want to make sure you get time to talk about the things you did discuss, but I want to go back real quick to this protected disclosure, what you said. And I'm just curious when you went to them and said, Hey, listen, this vaccine mandate sure seems like it's not constitutional. And, you know, I had a, a bunch of us had a bunch of arguments uh, similar to yours. And did they come back and say, well, you know, um, it's not really a protected disclosure because reasonable people can have reasonable differences about questions of policy and this is a policy question it's not a legal question did they come back with to you on uh, with that sort of mealy mouth slimy sort of weak <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm revealing what i really think here sorry <laughs> no i mean you're right so yeah people tried that that tactic and i'd say well if a policy is against supreme court case law, then that makes it illegal. So then the policy is illegal. And, you know, I think it became pretty clear to my chain of command pretty early on with once the vaccine mandate happened that they, I was going to be an issue for them. And so, I, you know, a lot of this is retrospect. Uh, you know, when I look back at things and I think like, oh, that's probably why they did that. Or, oh, that's probably why they did this. And, you know, it, yeah, they tried all of that, all of that. So did and, they retaliate because, because you made the statement to them or did they retaliate because you went to Congress? So that's a part I haven't been able to figure out yet. And I, I don't know if I ever will. Um, but one thing that's really interesting that stands out is uh, the day I left to go, uh, I had already been selected for this new unit and I, uh, I had accepted. And that new unit wanted me to come back to Virginia to train, to, to do some mandatory training for the new position. So I did. Um, and then, the, so the day I left for that training is the day listed on my paperwork uh, that somebody made an allegation about me that I had been making unprotected disclosures to the media, which that's not true. Uh, nobody saw me in the media until the night of May. Well, actually, I guess they saw me during the day on May 18th of this year, uh, which is when I testified publicly. But I did not start going to the media until that evening. And, um, you know, at the, the advice of my counsel, they said you can only talk about things that are already public. So um, I still don't know who made that allegation. I have my theories. Um, and I think it got to a point where they made that allegation against me, either for protected disclosures I had already made or just because I was, in their eyes, a problem child because I was actually trying to uphold my oath. So let's talk. Let's go back to Stephanie's questions. Let's talk about some of the things that you that you we've identified the vaccine mandate and tell you what you got a whole bunch of listeners to our program that agree with you wholeheartedly 
but let's talk about some of the other things, right, Steph, that uh, yep. fall within that, that, that arena you wanted to get out there and get fixed. For sure. Um, so one of the first ones that became public, uh, this was part of my testimony in February that was leaked, uh, was a threat tag that the FBI called Threats to SCOTUS 2022. And as the domestic terrorism agent at that time, I got guidance from the FBI that said, hey, we got this new threat tag. And the initial part of the threat takes uh, guidance said something to the effect of, you know, there's a lot of threats going on uh, to the Supreme Court right now because uh, somebody leaked a draft decision that is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. We, we know that that happened now and that was the Dobbs decision. And we know that there were people, um, you know, picketing and threatening and rioting in front of Supreme Court justices' houses and doxing them. And we also know that that's a federal crime, um, which the FBI is supposed to investigate. I forget the statute off the top of my head, but uh, we also know that there was a guy who traveled across the country to try and assassinate Justice Kavanaugh. So we know all these things are happening. And these are appropriate reasons where law enforcement should be investigating and intervene. You know, and while they're there, they could have investigated who leaked that that decision. I mean, exactly. just saying, you know, yep. get a twofer. Yep, exactly. So that's a part of this that I love. You'll always see in these articles uh, when something leaks out, like, you know, someone familiar with the matter who remained anonymous, blah, 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 blah. There's another one that just came out yesterday, I think, from, from Newsweek about the FBI. And there's FBI officials in there who remained anonymous. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, hey, when is their security clearance going to get suspended? Because in my case, that's what I got suspended for, but just an allegation of it. And that was enough for them to strip my clearance. But anyways, that's a different rabbit hole, I suppose. So this threats to SCOTUS 2022 threat tag, I'm like, okay, yeah, that doesn't seem anything wrong with that so far. And then I keep reading and it says something to the effect of uh, we need to start looking at uh, pro-life adherents uh, who may... Uh, engage in some type of violent behavior because of this decision. And and I was like, wait a second, why would pro-life people engage in some type of violent activity or some type of backlash to an abortion clinic or whatever else? Because as a domestic terrorism agent, I was, I had purview over the one uh, abortion clinic in our, in, in, in the Wichita area of operation. And well, I had- know, I, I've served in the Middle East for a long time. And I've been to these celebrations where they fire off guns into the air yep. when they're super happy, yep. uh, you know, so maybe, maybe they're violently celebrating. <laughs> yeah. Well, the FBI would love it if, if they were, because then they'd say, see, they have a for violence. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, it looks like they're starting to twist this uh, threat tag around and try to point it at people that it shouldn't be pointed at. And that, that, that was the case because the very next day, I got a, uh, oh, what's it, what do they call it? I forget what they call it in the FBI, but uh, uh, basically a, um, a request, um, I forget, RQI, I think it's like request questionnaire. They basically wanted me to query my uh, informant base uh, because I was like one of a very few number of people who had a pro-life um, confidential human source, which that that's a confidential human source is a CHS. That's what the FBI calls CIs. Um, you know, they like to have their own acronyms for things because they, I don't know why, but they do. And uh, I think they think they're better than everybody. So they got to make up their own nonsense. But uh, so my CI, they want me to ask them all these questions. And all these questions are like clearly 
indicative of someone in the FBI or multiple people who worked on this or who knows, maybe it's coming down from the head shed. I don't know, but I get tasked with all these questions to ask him about uh, pending attacks from pro-life people. And I'm like, dude, this is, this is out of control. Like this is clearly trying to twist the Dobbs leak and turn it against people who are pro-life. And Which I was like, make any sense. No, it I doesn't mean, make it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. <laughs> and I was like, well, Sleep I, I America. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, think I, can, <laughs> I don't think I can legally abide by this. So that was one of the things I brought to Congress and then was leaked. And then, um, um, what were some of the other things? Uh, you know, I'm all riled up about, about that one. And this is how I get. <laughs> no, yeah. No, so, I, I, I feel you. Something else you mentioned was the school board threats. Oh yeah. The school board threat takes. So, um, man, this would have been October. I think October of 21 is when this threat take first became made public from some other whistleblowers in the FBI. Um, I don't know who, who they all are or what they're, I, I, I don't know, but it, I remember first seeing that like on the news and it was like, you know, FBI whistleblower and they had the email that, that was sent and it was like, okay, well that's a problem. And then, I mean, this is still ongoing. Like, uh, uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, he just testified like a week ago, maybe two weeks ago now. And this was brought up again because he, uh, had sent out a memo at the request of a nationwide school board of a, of a nationwide school union, school teachers union. And they basically are targeting parents as, as terrorists, the FBI and, and, uh, the DOJ. And, uh, they, they keep, of course, they keep saying, no, we're not, we're not doing that. That's not true. And it's like, well, that is true. Uh, so uh, what I brought forward was the actual information that was showing that the FBI was doing that. And, you know, I think, I think Congressman Jim Jordan said it best at my hearing. He said, they found out that you brought us information about that school board threat tag. And so they said, if we can get this guy, then nobody else is going to come forward or something else like that. I mean, you can find the clip on YouTube, but um, it was something to that effect. And I think he's probably right. You know, they found out either that piece of information that I whistle blew about or some of the other ones or who or all of them, who knows? And they said, we got to get rid of this guy. He's a problem. He's, um, I don't know if it was like this uh, in the CIA, but in the FBI, if you um, say, you know what? I made an oath to the constitution and I'm going to uphold that oath and I'm going to stand by that oath as best as I can. If you do that, instead of saying, I will do whatever the FBI wants. You are a problem to them and they want you gone. And I'm an example of that. Kyle Serafin is an example of that. Marcus Allen, another guy I testified with is an example of that. And Steve Friend, another guy I testified with is an example of that. And there are more who we don't, who we know, but the public doesn't know who they are yet. And there, I just today, I was talking with two other people in the FBI who are either close to being part of the same purge or might somehow escape the snare of it just barely. And both of them are reaching out, asking for advice, asking for tips, asking for help. And it's like, and guess what? They're all unvaccinated too. If someone asked me right now, do you still love the agency? I would say yes. I would say yes, I still love the agency. But I want to, I would like some things fixed because, um, the last couple of years has exposed some serious, at a minimum, leadership failures. I want to ask you, 
you know, despite all of this, clearly you joined the FBI for a reason, just like you joined the army for a reason, right. just like you went into law enforcement for a reason. Do you still uh, have a, have a hankering for the FBI? Do you still like them? Uh, I mean, you know, like them in the, in the sense of what they, they ideally are supposed to represent. Cause I go ahead. I, and I'm talking too much. Go ahead. Please. No, I, you know, that's a hard question because there's a small number of people who I talk to still who are in the FBI. And when I talk to them, most of them, at least I can hear the struggle in their voice. And that just tells me that they know the things that I know and they see the things that I saw and maybe not the exact same things, like the exact same things I whistle blew, but the same type of stuff. And they don't know how to deal with it because they're getting a paycheck every two weeks and golden handcuff. It's the golden, golden handcuff for sure. And I don't know if it can be fixed where I sit right now. And I know I'm very uniquely uh, attached to this situation. So I could be wrong, but from my point of view, I don't think it can be, I don't think it can be saved. Um, when I first got hired by the FBI, I was stunned that I got hired, that I made it through. Yeah. And, I felt the same way. I yeah. felt the same way. I was like, how did I fool him into hiring me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and I thought like, wow, I, I made it. You know, I remember telling my wife on our first drive to Kansas, I was like, I'm never going to change jobs again. I swear. Like I, I, I did it. You know, I, I did it. And this is it. This is the peak for somebody in law enforcement, the FBI, as long as I can remember, was looked at as the top of the mountain to get to. And I remember, you know, even at, at the police department that I worked at, you know, there were guys who had bashed the FBI. And I think a lot of that was because they were uh, too afraid to even try to even put their hat in the ring because they thought they weren't good enough or whatever. Where here I am thinking I'm not good enough, but if I don't try, I'll never know. And then, whoa, I got hired, you know. And, um, you know, sometimes I do look back and I think, man, I should have just stayed uh, a cop and and you know, kept fighting the good fight in that way. But, uh, you know, I, I put my hat in that ring and I, I got hired and it, it, it was, I'll say this too. It was the best job I ever had. Like overall, all the malfeasance I saw aside, I thought like, this is a good job. There are good people here. But as the days tick by, I, I really start questioning the quote unquote good people because how good are you if you know how wrong things are and you continue to just say nothing. You continue yeah. to violate that violate that tenant from James four seventeen. Yeah, I don't know. If I had a nickel every time someone said, "Hey Jim, I appreciate everything you're doing, but you know, I've I've got a mortgage. Yep. Uh, I've got that." And I actually understand. Like I, I try not to judge that, mm -hmm. but it sure could have been helpful down the line, you know, it could have been helpful to you down the line. If someone said, Hey, listen, this guy's a troublemaker. And at least just one of them said, well, hold on, just hold on just a second. Take a look at what he actually said. Okay. So yeah, you know, I've got like you, I'm sure I've got some feelings about, uh, you know, my work there. And I think that there are some things that have to be fixed. And I think, I, not being in the FBI, I don't know. I can't make a comparison between yours and my agency, but I think that there are probably some parallels. Uh, and, but I don't want to talk too much because I want to let you. Was there what else was on that list? That we there was the to? domestic terrorism symbols guide. Would you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> Congressman Gates asked me about this at, at the hearing, and this had come out uh, from somebody else in August of 2022. Yeah, just last year. It had come out then, and uh, I thought Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, I think it was Hawley, uh, definitely Ted Cruz, right around when it came out, uh, Christopher Ray was testifying. And Ted Cruz slams his boot on the table and he has the Gonzalez battle flag on there, which is one of the symbols on the FBI's domestic terrorism symbols guide that they say are indicative of violent. Really? Yeah. Yes. The Gonzalez <laughs> battle flag, the That's Gadsden so flag, um, the Betsy Ross flag, the number two and the letter. Betsy K. Ross. Yeah. All of these. All what? Of these. And, but as Christopher Ray testified to, he said, Hey, there's a caveat. There's a caveat usually on these type of inf intelligence products that say we don't investigate the First Amendment just for investigating freedom of speech's sake. And it's like, OK, you know, it reminds me of um, uh, the movie Talladega Nights uh, when uh, uh, Will Ferrell's character says, yeah, I said with all due respect. And then the other guy's like, you can't just say whatever you want if you said with all due respect first. And th that's what these caveats remind me of because, because, oh, oh, you put a caveat on it and, and you say, well, we're not, we're not going to investigate domestic violent extremism just simply based off of first amendment protected speech. But then that's, that's exactly what they do. Like, oh, you, you got it. It's funny. All of those symbols are like a lot of libertarians love those symbols mm -hmm. and all that. And we had Brennan out on, you know, to go to my side of the house, yeah. out talking about how libertarians might be domestic terrorists. He said that on national television. Which like, is, what are they trying to do? Yeah. Like people who like wow. the Constitution? Yeah. <laughs> it's like bizarro land. It is. It is. Well, and I think you're right. I think it is getting to a point where, if you start reading quotes from the Constitution, they're going to say, man, that guy sounds like a terrorist. Because, you know, there's a part, I think it's in the preamble, where it talks about if if uh, despotism gets too far to a point, then you have not only a right, but a duty to throw off that form of government. And it's like, if 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 the FBI sees this and hear me say that, which is a not a direct quote, but I pull it's, it comes from the Constitution, they're going to say, man, that's that's extreme speech. And it's like, that's literally in our constitution. Listen, I think you, you were in the army, right? Yeah. So I think the way to deal with this, it, the army has two powerful training tools, negative reinforcement and public humiliation. So people need to be laughed in their face. When yep. they say dumb stuff like that, people need to do like their best Tucker Carlson impression and just laugh yeah, laugh at them for a while stop take a breath laugh some more then tell them they're dumb yeah. super dumb mm -hmm. and then like Lord. you know i think at least at the fbi headquarters like at that level i think those people have just full-on drank the kool-aid and they think like you have to do what we want and what we say or else we're coming for you and they think that that is right and you know i I saw it kind of early on in my career. And again, you know, I was a cop beforehand and maybe I was different because like, I always have liked, like one of my favorite uh, courses in college was constitutional law. And I always paid close attention to changes in, in constitutional case law. Granted, my police department did a really good job of keeping up on that stuff and making sure we were apprised of it. Well, now fast forward, I'm in the FBI. I'm a new agent. I maybe six months, maybe. And my um, SSA, which is supervisory special agent, she'd been in the FBI for like 15 years or something. 
she was like an analyst before she became an agent and now she's a supervisory agent and now she's even higher than that. But, um, she's asking me some questions about this case. It was a domestic terrorism case and, uh, trying to give me some ideas and tell me some things to do. And it was in front of like some other people. And I just was like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, take a note. And I'm thinking in my head, like that's a fourth amendment violation. Like we cannot do that. That's illegal. So I go back to my desk and I'm like, I don't remember the name of the case off the top of my head that addresses this very issue, but I bet I can find it. Lo and behold, in like three minutes, I find it. I grab a couple sentences from it. I print it off. I go back in her office and I'm like, hey, ma'am, can I uh, can I talk to you for a little bit uh, just about that case again? And we start talking and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, I pulled up this case law. I was wondering if maybe you take a look at it. And she does. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's illegal. That was well, the thing they wanted me to do. And she was like, yeah, yep, I think you're right. I think you're right. She's like, yeah, just just forget about it. Just don't do that. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. See, but, if you hadn't well, done that, though. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But here's, like... here's the problem, though, is like most people in the FBI, like they probably don't have that pension for paying attention to the Supreme Court case law. They probably only had constitutional law course at Quantico for a few weeks because they were like a school teacher beforehand or something. And if their boss told them to do something, they probably just would go do it. And it's like, you, as a law enforcer in this nation, you have to be aware of this stuff. Like, I'm not saying you're going to get it right every time, but you at least got to be aware. We, we are in a society where people are taught to go with the flow. We had a really interesting interview with one lady, um, Brooke, who her new organization is called against the flow and she left federal service i mean we need to be very aware that to use our common sense and our head to think and thank you so much for saying something and for knowing something about the constitution isn't this what every person should know yeah and this is why we need to homeschool our children uh, yeah 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 amen <clears throat> yeah so I have a question, and it's been brought up. I've seen it on the news. I've seen other people talk about this. You know, you mentioned 9-11. After 9-11, a, a lot of people were motivated to go into service, you know, myself included, you included. Yep. I, was, I was in the Army before 9-11. But, um, you know, and then within the FBI, there was a there was a shift. You know, you guys went from pure law enforcement, as I understand it, again, I'm an outsider, to incorporating more of an intelligence activity. And see, that's where I could see things like what you described happening. Because when you're doing intelligence, you're, you're grabbing all the tools at your disposal, whether that's tools given you through the Patriot Act or FISA or whatever, to collect the information, to be able to build... Uh, for us, an intelligence package. You guys are a little different, you know, because, you know, the goal is to build something for a, you know, a legal proceeding, a, you know, send somebody to court. Do you think, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to lead you here at all. Do you think that sort of that intelligence side being built up over time has had an effect on the law enforcement side? And yeah. if so, what? What's yeah, it, the effect? It absolutely has. And I think the primary effect is that people in the FBI think they can open a case and keep it on an American citizen or someone in America. They can open a case and keep it open for no reason other than to gather intelligence. And you literally have people in the FBI, managers, um, assistant directors on down saying, I mean, they won't come in 
come and say it out loud because they probably know it's wrong. But inside the FBI, because it's a metrics metrics run organization, you got to have cases open to continue getting money from Congress. So how can we keep the case open is a lot of the time what you're going to get from from managers is, well, did you think about doing this? Did you think about trying that? And it's like, you know, in some cases, in some instances, these cases have been open for years. I was aware of cases that were open for five, six, seven, eight years. On well, that's broad waste abuse right there. That's absolutely. Kind of how do you keep something like a FISA open that long if you don't have evidence to keep it open? Like, don't they, aren't they supposed to review that and say, well, yeah, we don't need this anymore? They're supposed to. Now, even though I was on national security, I never did a FISA or anything, but um, yeah. I think I know, I probably know more about FISAs than most, maybe not as much as you, but um, uh, for instance, like I think it was back in 2013 or 2014, there was one of the reviews of the FISC and it turned out that they approved like over 99% of um, FISA warrants that came to them. And it's like, hmm. that's probably a problem itself because you really think the government gets it right over 99% of the time? Probably not. And we know they don't, at least in one case where an FBI attorney literally took information out of an email so he could get a FISA renewal. And then he didn't get criminally charged, really. He's a he's an active attorney in the D.C. Well, it was area, an honest right? mistake. Yeah. It was an honest mistake. Don't worry Can about it. Can you all explain FISAs? Uh, right. Uh, so, go ahead. You, go you, ahead, you, please. You, no, no, please. It's a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And yeah. um, it was beef, beefed up. Uh, after 9/11, I don't know the full history of it, but I do know that you know when you, when domestically law enforcement have the ability to get FISA warrants to collect on, on, uh, on, on an individual who they suspect of, of being engaged in wrongdoing, whatever it is, and so that it'll collect, it'll collect a lot of your data. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you're under a FISA warrant, you know there's some people poking around in your cloud poking around in your emails and you, you probably need to, you know, yeah, not be so naughty. <laughs> and I guess from the FBI side of it, the FISA, I, honestly, I'm at, I don't think the FBI should be allowed to have FISA use. I, I, I think it's been abused by the FBI too many times. And I think uh, the intelligence portion of things need, needs to go away from the FBI because uh, it, we need to get, the FBI needs to get back to its core law enforcement capabilities. I think Hoover would be really, 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 really happy about the intelligence driven um, mechanism beast that it has become. And what's funny, you can go on the FBI's website and there's like a timeline of history and 9-11, they say it loud and proud in, the, in that section about how happy, not happy, they don't use that word. They say, this is when, you know, the, the, the agency shifted from a law enforcement agency into a, an intelligence agency. And it is part of the intelligence community. And I think that that needs to change. Well, they were the first one to put out their assessment on COVID origins. Well, and look what they said about that. that yeah, I like. I did like their assessment. It was yeah, nice. I mean, their nice. assessment is correct, I think. And what's funny about that is that assessment existed long before it came out. And mm -hmm. that was one of those things where I said, hey, I have uh, classified information that I would like to share. And I had all sorts of info regarding that well uh, let's let's steer clear of that for now um but it for for obvious reasons here but <laughs> what i'm saying is uh uh you know the i do think there is like you guys historically you know, you've done a great job with those uh russian nationals that were you know 
here living here for a long time you know mm -hmm. we, we wouldn't have gotten to the bottom of some of those things so there is a traditional role uh, for counterintelligence that mm -hmm. i think is really necessary because we are supposed to be outward facing we are not supposed to be Inward. here on u.s soil doing you know spycraft as a, as an agency but yep. fbi they handle those knuckleheads who want to try and spy from spy on us from here and i think that's an indispensable indispensable function yeah it's yeah. when it shifts to americans that i start getting a little mm, not so not so happy about that right and i i think that's the problem like from my perspective at least like if you look back through the fbi's history uh let's just go to like 1920s it was communism and mm -hmm. the fbi played a huge role in deporting people without due process because of the red scare and it's like, well, in America, you have the First Amendment. Like, you can be a communist here. You shouldn't get deported. For I mean, that. you could be dumb. You're allowed yeah, to be dumb. Right. right. You know, um, well, speaking of Brennan, you know, he voted for a communist in the late 70s, if I recall correctly. And he, he tried to play it off like it was a protest vote, but I, I'm pretty sure he's a communist. Yeah, he probably is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and then uh, leading up to World War II, the FBI played a huge role in Japanese internment camps, rounding up uh, Japanese Americans. And then in the 60s and 70s, it was uh, civil rights, Martin Luther. Did you guys know that the FBI sent Martin Luther a letter trying to convince him to commit suicide? I mean, I that's the FBI. That. Yeah, they did. Oh, and it's in the FBI's terrible. vault or like an FBI uh, clerical person came across it. And it it's it's public information at this point. Um and That's then, horrible. right. They also had Martin Luther King Jr.'s phone. Why are you trying cap. to make me feel bad? Why are you doing that? <laughs> well, because I try to show that the FBI has been corrupt for a long time, and it's not been just a few bad apples. It's been a lot of people not willing to say no to to the wrong thing. Um, I'll just jump to 2001, 9 11. It was like, okay, now Muslim terrorists are extreme are the extremists that we need to focus on. And I think we all, we all can look back to 9-11 and probably remember some of that fear, you know, and uh, they've taken those same tools, though, now. And now they're turning them against uh, people, you know, parents at a school board or somebody who voted for Donald Trump or somebody who owns guns or has a tattoo of a Punisher skull and uh, the three Roman numerals in it for three percenters. Another one of their symbols that they think is a I don't even symbol know what that of terrorism. Is. It's a three percenter symbol or something, and um, three percenters means hey it, boomer. Yeah, it means it, so. There's a there's a group out there. I only know this because I worked I worked DT, yeah. but there's like uh, militia groups out there who claim to be three percenters or whatever. And uh, the FBI's take is, oh, that's a, a an ode to the Revolutionary War. Hey, wait, where, if I Google this afterwards, am I going to be in a lot of trouble? No, not, I don't think okay. not just for Google. Just making it. sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, you know, all these things they twist and obfuscate. And, and now they're using a lot of those those same tools that they used in the wake of 9-11 that were approved because of the Patriot Act. They're using those on Americans now. And I mean, I, I think I think now, it, now you're speaking my language. I, you know, my big concern is the Patriot Act. Like I'm guilty as anybody, you know, as soon as I wanted to use the tools that were available to, you know, exact vengeance right. for an attack on our country or more politely, you know, hey, protect our nation, right? Yeah. But I, I am worried now that the things that we've done so well doing, and we have done well in protecting against other terrorist acts, 
you know, but I'm worried that those things get turned inward and we, yeah. we militarize everything. We've militarized healthcare. We've militarized, you know, these things that were never meant to be militarized. And when you do that, you start bringing in all the military tools. Right. So, sorry, I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox because no. you've only got like five minutes left and Steph has probably got a list of things we were supposed to cover. <laughs> yeah. You guys just have to have me back on. <laughs> we, um, so at the feds, this podcast, we, we have the, the mission, uh, feds bringing, um, accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. And you have been an, uh, an impeccable example of an insider who has integrity and you have common sense and you went with your gut and you, you blew the whistle. Um, so how can there be accountability here? I mean, you've been retaliated against because of blowing the whistle. Um, so how can we bring reform at this point? I mean, you're saying the FBI really, there's no, there's probably no hope for it, but what can we do? Honestly, I think having conversations like this is, is a great starting point because I think mm -hmm. there are so many people who are not aware of what is going on and what is happening. And that's actually been another part of the struggle uh, for me during this whole time is because most of the people in my life have no idea and no interest. And it's like, you have a direct source in me as to what happened, what is going on, what is happening with me and my mm -hmm. family. And most of the people don't ask, don't care, don't watch these interviews or anything. And it's like, that's, I think where we can start at like a grassroots level is starting to get people to be aware that apathy has to, has yes. to end. I, uh, before our interview, I was talking with my sister on the phone who also homeschools her children we are on opposite sides of once the COVID happened, there were complete divide. Um, it was very sad. Um, but I, I was talking about you to her and I, I said, wow, I'm, I'm really excited about this. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of information. And uh, there was silence, no question. She didn't want to know. She didn't want to hear anything. Why do you think people are like this? And I want to grab her and say, why are you homeschooling your children? Why are you wait? Why are you taking this opportunity and not teaching them how to think? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's what I want from my kids to teach them to think. Yep. Yep. So I, I wish I knew why. Yeah. I think honestly, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I really am starting to think that it, that it comes back to cowardice is people are that we love our lives so much. We love our comfort. We love our Netflix and our DoorDash and our direct deposit every two weeks. And, oh, if I just don't worry about it, or if I just do what they say, then, then everything's going to be all right. But as history has told us time and time again, everything is not going to be all right. Tyranny will only grow. And it, it is up to the people to stop it. You know, one of the one of the things that can fix this is we need a government who is afraid of its people more than the people are afraid of its government. And that's how it was when we were founded. And I don't mean like I don't want people who work for the government thinking like, oh, is somebody going to come and kick my door in tonight, which is a fear that I live under that that's going to happen from the government. But the government should be worried about being voted out of office or having their pensions 
um, you know, turned into moon dust because they didn't actually earn it or, or who, who knows? I mean, th- there needs to be like huge reform and it starts with people wanting to know and wanting to pay attention, but instead you get crickets most of the time. And that, that's really disheartening to me, to be honest, uh, because it's like that in my life a lot too. But then I remember like, we have to keep standing firm. We have to keep doing what is right. We have to put on the armor of God, Ephesians six, and keep going forward into the fray because like I said in my opening statement, here am I, send me. If we're not going to do it, nobody's going to do it. And hopefully, because I think courage and fear are two of the most powerful uh, things that we can impact on somebody else. If they see us and say, man, that person's being courageous. I'm afraid. They're courageous. I want to be more like them. Maybe they will be. I don't know. I hope so. I pray that they will be. Well, I think that answers the question, though. Mm-hmm. Steph asked, what do you do? You said talking about it. That's that's important. Yeah. But people need to provide an example. Bravery is learned. It's mm-hmm. not natural. We run away or or if we have to, we fight. And that's not bravery. That's just, you know, hormones and, and fear. Yeah. But if they see somebody who makes the conscious choice to risk everything and put it on the line, people tend to say, okay, that guy can do it. Now he's, 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 he's taking a beating, but he, he's doing it. Um, I, you know, I think that that's probably you're the example. And so we just need a few more. It doesn't take much. For sure. I, I totally agree with that. We need, we do, we need more. And, you know, I, I've been saying this a lot lately too. Like, I don't want this. I would not have picked this. I, but I, I firmly believe that, you know, God picks and ordains the hill. We just have to obey. And I, I don't want to die on any hill, but the hill has been picked for me. And, you know, thankfully I'm not dead yet and I'm going to keep fighting, but we all have to. Thank you so much, Garrett. Thank you for your stance. Thank you for standing strong. Yep. Thank you for having me.